welcome back to Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. It's nice to see you again. Sorry, I know that it's been a few uh, weeks since we last released an episode, but it's been very hectic. Uh, another campaign had some uh, occurrences that were very important that we dedicated our attention to. Then last week we had free the Friedman Conference, which was 24 hours of Friedman. That means Brian, Emily, uh, I, uh, all the people in the ATA, I'm forgetting a lot of people, so I'm sorry about that. I don't wanna lose uh, credit there, but we were up for 24 hours, and within that span of time, it was hard to wiggle in time for a podcast. So apologies, but we're back. And one thing that I want to talk about, and I've been wanting to talk about this for weeks, but we didn't get around to doing a podcast, is the COVID Safe app. Now, you'll remember COVID Safe, uh, all of the MPs, many of the media outlets, including surprisingly enough, the Australian, were telling us basically that we were akin to monsters, just irredeemably irresponsible people if we didn't get this app on our phone. And I suggested, and I made a video on this some time back, that no one should get this app on their phone because it had many security implications, not to mention just the fact that you probably shouldn't invite the government into your life that way, into knowing where you are or to having access to who you're interacting with or where you've been or things like that. Uh, but well, it turns out that in addition to being an expense for the taxpayer, in addition to having politicians and media outlets shoving it down our throats, it's also been an utter disaster. Just, just a complete failure. So the basic idea of the COVID Safe app was this. You get this app on your phone and it's all encrypted, but what it does is it communicates with other phones that have the COVID Safe app on them. And if you're in proximity to each other, then they, the, the telephones make a note of that. And only when someone has COVID and lets the app know, can we then send out alerts to everyone else. Anyone who gets a, an alert that says, hey, you've been in contact with someone with COVID, they should have gone and got, gotten tested. And then we would be able to track how that how coronavirus, how coronavirus has spread through that person and ultimately we'd stop the spread, which I guess maybe logically makes some sense, but not a single case of coronavirus was tracked down by the COVID Safe app, which is to say, maybe some people went on their phone and let the COVID Safe app know that they tested positive, but not a single new case was detected by the COVID Safe app. So the tracing, just a complete failure. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, now, we couldn't have known, in, in, in all fairness to people who were pushing the COVID Safe app at the time, uh, it seemed to be the kind of position of the party generally that this was a good thing. It, uh, I think a lot of people maybe thought this was a really important way to get back on track. But I said, and the ATA's position generally was that it was a bad idea. Uh, but we did talk about the COVID Safe app uh, some time back with Amanda Stoker, who is a senator who is a very good friend of the uh, advocacy organization. And so we're going to play a short clip of that now. Enjoy. And on the privacy, I, I suppose it's true what you say. There, there, there's kind of an acknowledgement going in that there will be some kind of some possibility that your data will be seen by somebody, because if this is a tracing yeah. app then there's no real tracing without some data. 
Uh, That's what it's for. It's exactly. for tracing, but only in a narrow set of circumstances. And um, it's just, yeah, it, it shouldn't be understood as a, a general, um, you know, puppeteering of everybody who has the app. Um, but it will mean the disclosure of information of the people who end up having contact with someone who's got COVID. Yeah. Sure. And uh, so I wanted to bring up two things kind of relating to that. And the first I found really, really crucial, and I don't see this, uh, this piece of data really being pushed enough, mm -hmm. which is that the government itself has said that we would need something like a 40% adoption rate in Australia, in Australian society, for the app yeah. to be effective, which is mm -hmm. roughly the amount of people that have banking apps on their phone. And so to me, that seems very ambitious that say, to say that the same amount of people that have a banking app on their phone will, will put uh, this app that, that, that you know, is a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people, uh, they'll, do the same, they'll have the same adoption rate. So isn't, isn't that a big bump in the road that not enough people are talking about, that if 40% of the population doesn't get it, we might not really do much with it? Well, the, the short answer is... Yes, there needs to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go in order for it to have its desired effect. Um, it's not going to provide us with um, enough of a picture of where the virus is moving um, unless we get a pretty substantial uptake. Now, I'm not sure that the 40% the figure is inflexible. Um, I suspect it will be um, sort of examined in the light of... Um, you know, how things are going, but mm. we, we do need there to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go in order for it to um, facilitate the reopening of the economy because without it, it isn't managing risk in the way that it's intended to. All right. And uh, that, that's a very interesting interview, by the way, if you want to go back into our archives. Uh, that, uh, that's a great episode to listen to. I had a great time with Amanda Stoker. Amanda Stoker is fantastic. And uh, yeah, hopefully you'll check it out. Since we're on the topic of coronavirus, I want to talk about a tale of two states, Victoria and New South Wales. Very, very different cases, <laughs> uh, these two states. So Victoria obviously completely blew it. The government there just bungled coronavirus in the worst possible way. And as the rest of the country, seems to have coronavirus relatively under control. Victoria has registered the single greatest daily increases in Australia since COVID began. So, I mean, you're seeing sometimes them reporting 200 and something, close to 300 cases in a single day, while the rest of us are like worried about 14 cases spread out somewhere near the Victorian border. Uh, so clearly, there's been a difference in response. If, if this had been something inevitable on behalf of the Victorian government, we would have seen a similar uh, number of cases kind of across the board, but clearly not. Clearly, it was Victoria and their incompetent government who completely bungled it, and now Victoria is around a week into what I believe is a six-week lockdown. Now imagine that, and many of you maybe don't have to imagine that, maybe some of you are listening from Victoria, uh, to which, by the way, uh, hello, and I'm sorry for what you're going through. Uh, imagine that you're a business owner in Victoria, and like the rest of the country, you've had to deal with the shutdowns, 
and you've had to sacrifice a lot, you've had to maybe lay a few people off, you've had to eat into your super or your savings, or you've had to do whatever number of things in order to just get through the lockdowns. And then finally, the government starts to ease restrictions. You can, you can start to make money again. You start to feel a bit of pressure come off, and there's a lot of rebuilding to do, but you're back. And then the government decides to just, through sheer incompetence, bungle the entire response and plunge you back into a shutdown. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how frustrating and how horrible that is? I mean, honestly, I, I don't know how any of the politicians who are currently in place, in power, in Victoria, could ever get reelected. And if they are, then I'm not sure what the hell Victoria is doing, which is uh, what the hell Victoria is doing is a statement that I use pretty frequently, just even before coronavirus. Uh, but then let's compare that to New South Wales. Now, New South Wales has not had a perfect response. We all remember the Ru Ruby Princess, I believe was the name of the cruise ship, where it was just completely infested with coronavirus. And all those people were just allowed to enter New South Wales. And obviously that resulted in a severe uh, spike in coronavirus cases. No one has been fired. No one has been prosecuted. Why hasn't someone been prosecuted for that? Um, but all right, those mistakes were made. But overall, it seems that New South Wales has had a pretty reasonable approach to coronavirus. We were very cautious at the beginning. We started to reopen early. The reopening happened in phases. It was kind of a responsible, slow approach. And now we seem to be pretty much back. Obviously, the economy is still not back to where it should be. But livelihoods has, have been restored. Restaurants can operate. Pubs can operate. Even now, with the, with the newest restrictions, uh, those seem mostly symbolic. I believe the number of patrons that a pub can have now are like 300, as opposed to as many as you want, which, you know, God forbid, uh, now the, no the, the, the number of people in a single booking can be 10 people instead of 20, or okay, so a few, you know, birthday parties are affected. So really, we've seen a proper response. And one of the things that I want to say on this point is Gladys Berejiklian, the premier of New South Wales, has really shown some impressive leadership. And we've had our disagreements politically. Not she hasn't had disagreements with me because she doesn't know who I am. I've had my disagreements with, with Gladys Berejiklian on policy. I think that the spend on, uh, on the light rail in Sydney was just, uh, uh, just really embarrassing, completely useless, uh, complete waste of money. But on this, she has shown remarkable leadership, especially when she has stood up to pressure for new lockdowns in New South Wales. She has said, we will take different approaches. We might even place some kind of restriction, but we will not shut down New South Wales. And here's a clip of her just doubling down on that. Suppression strategy. Unfortunately, what all of us have to accept is that restri as restrictions have eased and as people start to go back to work and go their daily lives, we are going to see those case numbers increase. But Every time we have an outbreak, we can't afford to lock down, reopen, lock down, reopen. That is no way to live and that is no way to be able to instill confidence to businesses to keep employing people. And, and that's why we have taken time in New South Wales to quadruple our health capacity, get the protective equipment we need for our frontline workers, put the processes in place to make sure we can do what's required to contain the spread. But so, I mean, I have to say, Gladys, good job, because 
I think uh, th there is a lot to be said about keeping coronavirus under control, making sure that our cases don't just get out of control again, to make sure that hospitals don't get overwhelmed, all of those things, uh, taking a cautious approach to all these things is rational. But Gladys seems to understand that we cannot do this again. We cannot destroy livelihoods again. We cannot have people stuck in their homes again. We cannot just shut down businesses the way that we did before. And honestly, kudos. Kudos, absolutely, because that was a really, really terrific uh, approach by our premier. Um, I want to move on to the 2019 National Drug Household Strategy Survey. Whew, uh, mouthful. Uh, so that was released recently. And it's come to the attention of the ATA, uh, mainly the policy director, Emily Dye, and the executive director, Brian Marlowe, that some of the figures being shown are being displayed in a kind of dishonest way. So we're going to go quickly to this clip of Brian Marlowe explaining briefly what is kind of iffy about these results. Yeah, so there's a report that's been released by the AIHW. Uh, and it essentially looks into drug usage, alcohol usage, uh, rates of smoking. Uh, for the first time ever, it's looking at vaping. Now, naturally, because vaping actually exists now, uh, as opposed to when the report was last dropped in about 2016 and vaping was only really starting in the country, uh, they're actually looking at vaping rates. And when you look at the data and then look at smoking rates, you can see that for the age groups where smoking rates have dropped, vaping use has gone up. So basic logic would tell you that those are people that have switched from smoking to vaping. Uh, so anti-vaping anti lobbyists are sort of pushing this bullshit narrative where they're going, well, smoking rates have dropped slightly and that's a net win, but vaping is bad, whilst ignoring that these are people that have gone to vaping. Uh, the other narrative that they're pushing is they've gone, well, uh, youth vaping rates are going up whilst pointing to 18 to 24 year olds. Now whilst 18 to 24 year olds are young, last I checked they were actually adults. Uh, they can sign up for the military, they can go to another country and put their lives on the line, but apparently for an anti-vapor they're considered a youth. Uh, and then again, when you look at that data, smoking rates have dropped down as well. So these are net wins, but you're not gonna hear about that because anti-vapors are pushing specific narratives because the report doesn't actually stack up so their goal is to reduce smoking rates to 10% by 2025. That was a goal they were supposed to reach in 2018. And then they missed that goal and they just went, ah, oh, well, uh, 2025, uh, we'll just, well, it's gonna be 10% by then. So then when you look at the reduction in smoking rates year by year, they're gonna, meet that, they're gonna miss that goal anyway. So they need to be reducing smoking rates on average by I think it's about 11% per year uh, as, a, as a reduction rate they're well below that. So they're not even gonna meet the new goal that they set for themselves after failing to meet the existing goal. Uh, so the response from them is, well, let's just try and pick out some things that are alarmist uh, and focus on that, which is youth vaping epidemic, which doesn't actually exist when you look at the data. And was there a problem with uh, some of the error rates or the margin of error in some of, that, in some of those numbers? Yeah, so when you, look at, when you actually look at some of the numbers, uh, specifically around you know, never smokers who took up vaping or uh, you know, occasional vapors and things like that, uh, anti-vapers are pointing to these, these statistical data points and going, well, there's some people who never smoked who've taken up vaping. Um, 
but then when you actually look at the notes of the report, it says that there's a huge margin of error on that particular part of the survey and that those data points shouldn't be uh, used or, or used with caution. So they're using data points with huge margins of error. They're cherry picking little bits to suit a narrative that they want to push. They're ignoring that smokers have switched from smoking to vaping, which is what is actually causing this small reduction in smoking rates that they're chest beating about. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're making their cake and trying to eat it too, right? So they're going, well, isn't it good? Smoking rates have gone down slightly, hasn't gone down at the rate that we need it to, to meet our own targets that we failed to already meet. Uh, and then basically saying, but vaping's bad. It, it's ridiculous. To what degree has vaping been responsible for some of those reductions? Uh, it's hard to say because the, when you look through the questions that they were asked, they're not asked uh, what caused you to quit smoking and was it vaping, for instance. So it's, it's hard to make that correlation. But what you can see is there's an age group of vapors that have gone up and there's about 400,000 of them. And then when you look at the reduction in that same rough age group of smokers, it's about three to 400,000 fewer smokers. So logic would dictate that that's pretty, pretty clear. All right, and uh, we're going to close the conversation now with something that I just want to hear from you about, that, that the ATA would be really interested to hear from you about, and that's on the topic of super, superannuation. So currently, and for some time now, the government has forced Australians to put a part of their salary, a part of their income, into superannuation. The argument there being we need to make sure that Australians that the government believes to be so irresponsible and stupid and unable to plan for themselves need to put some money away for their retirement so that they're able to you know, live uh, comfortable lives without having to get on the dole, whatever. All right. Uh, during COVID, the government has said, well, certain Australians can start to take some money out of their superannuation early if they've been impacted by the coronavirus uh, pandemic, by the crisis, by the economic crisis that ensued from coronavirus. And it was actually an important source of relief for many Australians who did see their personal economies hurt, or in some cases destroyed, by the COVID crisis. But one thing to really remember when we talk about the government allowing people to, to, to dip into their super, is that what the government is saying is, you can access your own money now. <laughs> the, the money that you made, that we forced you to put into the savings account, you are now allowed to, to access it. Which is kind of a bizarre thing. I mean, I guess thank you for, for allowing us to access our own money, but it's ours. That's my money, that's your money that's in super. So should this be mandatory? Right now, Senator Andrew Bragg is asking this question. He's leading the charge on questioning the validity of mandatory superannuation. In fact, if you go to his Facebook page, there's a poll that you can fill out and give your opinions about uh, mandatory superannuation. But it's true. This is our money. We don't, some people have different plans for their money. It might not be the best uh, plan of action for someone to invest that percentage of their income into superannuation. So should we be doing away with superannuation completely? One of the things that we had been discussing at the ATA a long time, uh, this was not publicly, this was just kind of within the halls of our uh, office, is does it even make sense, for example, that every single Australian at every income level, at every age, has this mandatory super on their 
uh, income. This is to say, if you're 17 years old and you just started working, you're in school, maybe you're working at a mechanic shop or, or a Starbucks or something like that. Well, Starbucks don't exist here, at a McDonald's. Uh, Macca's, sorry, yeah, my yank is coming out, uh, my internal yank. <laughs> uh, so you ha you're, you're, you're in there and you're making you know, small amounts of money. You're probably at the lowest income level that you'll be for the rest of your life. And what the government is saying is you have to, yeah, sorry, someone's having a conversation in the hallway. You know, I, I keep saying people don't completely stop their lives for our recording schedule. It's, uh, it's really, it's, it's unbelievable. How dare they? <laughs> so what I was saying is um, people, when they're at that income level, are probably going to be at the lowest income level, level of their entire careers, I, meaning when they're in their 20s, 25, early 30s, the amount of money that they're going to be making at that point is going to supersede by huge amounts the money that they're making early on, which means that the contributions to their mandatory superannuation are going to be so large compared to what, it, what they were before that they almost make the money put in super over that period of time completely irrelevant. Now, when you're a student, when you're a low-income young person, that percentage of, of income is actually pretty significant. You could do a lot with that. You could, you could save up for a car, you could put it in your own savings, you could even just spend it to enjoy yourself as a young person, which is a legitimate thing to do with your own money, by the way. Uh, so if we're not going to get rid of mandatory superannuation completely, which we should, could we at least look at the way in which, God, all of a sudden it's a, it's a war zone out there, sorry about the background noise, but could we at least reform the age demographic and the way in which different groups at different ages at different income levels get um, imposed upon. So that's a question for you to answer. Please let us know at um, on Twitter. We're at Oz Taxpayers on Twitter. I'm uh, on Twitter as Emilio Garcia Oz OZ. And I think that's where we're going to leave it now. Thank you very much for joining us. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, really wherever you get your podcast. Also. Please subscribe on YouTube if you want to. You can become a premium subscriber on our website. This gives you lots of interesting benefits. Uh, this has been Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. We'll see you next week.